Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast with me, Simon Maybon. Today, I'm joined by someone whose work I've been reading ever since I got interested in politics and Middle East politics in particular. I'm really excited that we're joined by, uh, by someone who's written extensively extensively on Middle East politics, some of the most groundbreaking works that, that are out there in, in the region, in regional politics. We're joined by Shibli Telhami, Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, where he's also the director for the University of Maryland's Critical Issues Poll and non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. Now, you'll all know his work I don't need to to go through it all. I don't have time to go through it all. I'd much rather spend time talking to him. But thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast today, Shibley. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. I'm really excited. I'm really looking forward to doing this. And I'm glad we're able to to find time to, uh, to talk to you. Can you tell us a little bit, just to begin with, what got you interested in working in the politics of the Middle East, please? Well, this is interesting because, you know, I um, uh, did my undergraduate uh, degree in mathematics. Uh, in fact, I didn't even take a single course in political science or wow. the Middle East as an undergraduate okay. student. Uh, and um, I changed my mind toward the end, and I went into um, philosophy and religion, studying four, four years um, uh, that subject uh, without taking any courses in politics <laughs> right. at all. Okay. Uh, and so it was actually after that, that uh, my heart was always um, in politics um, and in politics in the Middle East specifically. Um, uh, I found myself uh, constantly thinking about it. But really what what shifted my uh, uh, focus um, was a period uh, when I was in doing philosophy and, and religion. I, at the time, uh, thought that um, uh, that's maybe a, a, a good avenue to understand uh, politics in the Middle East. Um, so it's, it's interesting how we've come 180 degrees around on this issue, because at that time, really, I thought maybe what's animating a lot of the conflicts in the region is kind of conflicting world's views and and that religion possibly plays a part in that. And I thought that perhaps one way of understanding conflict was through research in that area. And yeah. I actually went to spend some time in Egypt uh, in the late, um, at the middle, middle 1970s um, with the aim of, of focusing on that. And frankly, spending time in the Middle East at that time, particularly as Sadat was uh, declaring his initiative to go to Jerusalem, um, I had uh, my entire focus shifted uh, because what I learned from uh, my own experience, my own, at least my mindset at the time, was that it really wasn't uh, about um, religion and worldviews. It was more about politics and economics. Right. Uh, yeah. And that I knew very little about it. And I found that the, I didn't have the tools to tackle the issues. Uh, and that maybe I was on the wrong path. So when I came back, uh, I uh, immediately went to UC Berkeley, where I was actually already taking some courses in philosophy, uh, and uh, I looked into uh, graduate school uh, and um, uh, in, in political science. And at the time, Berkeley had um, Kenneth Waltz, who was um, one of the sure. major yeah. uh, international relations thinkers, uh, a neorealist. Uh, and he and I had a really 
wonderful and constructive conversation. I had just read his book, uh, Man, the State, and War, which I found to be analytical, whether I agreed with it or not wasn't the issue, but it was yeah, yeah. a way of framing questions. And so really that got me interested more in political science. Uh, and ultimately, I ended up doing a dissertation on the Camp David, of course, between Israel and Egypt, which came out sure. as my first book with Columbia University and Press. And that really set me on that path. Oh, fantastic. So I, a couple of quick questions, if I may, just out of that. I, we've not had a mathematician on the podcast as yet. We've had a number of philosophers, but it's, it's fascinating that, that you're the first mathematician. Do you find that that has helped you in, in any way with your, with your your intellectual development over the years? Um, well, first of all, I wouldn't call myself a mathematician. So I have a BA in mathematics. Okay. Uh, but, um, uh, but, but nonetheless, yes, it did help me, I think. And, you know, we, we all rationalize these things as we go through, you know, whether, whether what you've done in the past influenced you and how. Uh, but I'd like to think that it did influence me. One of the things that really was essential for me was rigor. Um, yeah. And uh, that was true of both math and philosophy, that you really had to be rigorous in, an, in your analysis and you have to, you know, Z has to flow from A. And uh, so in that sense, it was very, very much important. Second, of course, in the contemporary political science, uh, we have had an infusion of mathematics, both in terms of statistical analysis uh, and um, a formal theory, game theory. And initially, frankly, I was actually interested uh, in that aspect of political science. I even started initially being interested in game theory, and I had one of the major game theorists in the world, uh, the late John Harsani, a Nobel laureate at Berkeley, who actually served on my dissertation committee. Right. So I had some interest in that, but I also moved away a little bit from that, actually quite a bit from that, uh, except for uh, my, obviously, public opinion analysis, which um, benefited sure, yeah. a lot from, from my skills. It's it's fascinating to hear the, the the sort of the different side of what you might have been doing, and I, I'm really curious in this conversation that you had with Kenneth Waltz. This was before you started on the the graduate program, was it? That's correct. I I, I went. I had I um, when I came back and started thinking about getting into uh, studying political science. Um, I asked around about some uh, books I should read, um, and. Uh, Someone suggested to me Man, the State, and War uh, as a classic book that I should start with. And I read that, and I was very impressed by the the, the kind of analysis and the rigor of the analysis. Um, and so to the extent that Kenneth Waltz, uh, the author, was actually right there in Berkeley, uh, I asked for an appointment and went to see him and had a really interesting conversation because he wasn't at all worried that I had no background in political science. <laughs> right. He said, I just want to figure out how you think. And, yeah. and he started probing about my thinking about issues. And uh, we got along extremely well. And he urged me to apply uh, to the graduate program, which I did and got accepted. And he became my mentor uh, in grad school. Uh, so, yes, this, this was a, a, a very interesting conversation. Uh, that that did influence I me. Mean, he had a lot of influence in my, particularly my early work. Um, if you look at um, uh, the uh, my my first book, uh, you know, on Camp David, um, it had a lot of uh, kind of realist, uh, neo-realist analysis of distribution of power, which to this day I would say is 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 the uh, critical starting point in my work. That is, that when I look at whether it's Middle East politics. 
um, international relations with the Middle East or international politics broadly or American relations with the Middle East, uh, the starting point for me is what is the distribution of power? And that distribution of power cannot be evaluated and Lest you understand the rules of the game, or some people call the structure of the system, yeah. whether it's international or domestic. So I, I, it's always been my starting point of analysis about you know how is power distributed, what is the most important instrument of power in the context of the system in which you're asking the question, and then beyond that though, I took issue with those who, um, who interpreted Waltz. Um, as um, suggesting that uh, the structure of the international system of distribution of power uh, essentially determines outcomes in international politics or certainly foreign policy. And I wrote an article very early on uh, on neorealism and foreign policy suggesting that people misunderstand uh, that this is a starting point of analysis that uh, that um, uh, you know the, the the system or or, uh, or distribution of power across the system does not determine the foreign policy of states and that it's a mischaracterization yeah. of, of foreign policies of uh, particularly Middle Eastern states that we're looking at and American foreign policy toward the Middle East to examine them um, through that prism that domestic politics is central and particularly public opinion and public opinion was central even in authoritarian regimes in the Middle East. In fact, what was interesting about how I you know, went from there is that um, in the uh, late 80s and, and, and early 90s, when people were focused on authoritarian regimes in the Middle East and essentially dismissing the notion that public opinion matters um, based on seemingly or, or, or at least uh, what people argued were really realist uh, paradigm in international relations, I took issue with that. Um, I always thought that public opinion matters indirectly or directly, even in authoritarian regimes. And so I started writing quite a bit uh, about that. And I was writing it not... From just from the point of view of a scholar, but from the point of view of someone who then became a participant in politics, um, because in in in, uh, in 1990 um, I um, had a council on relations fellowship, which. Uh, assigned me to the United Nations to be an advisor to uh, then uh, Ambassador Tom Pickering at the United Nations, who was represented the U.S. just as Iraq invaded Kuwait. Um, so I was there through a very important period of uh, the contemporary relationship between the U.S. and the Middle East, uh, the first Iraq War, the 1991 Iraq War. Uh, and, um, and coming out of that... Um, I wrote a series of articles, including one about how public opinion in the Middle East was still central in the way leaders have uh, calculated uh, their uh, their moves, including Saddam Hussein, how, how that was, you can't really understand what they did without understanding the role of public opinion. Um, and, and that took me on a path that also led me to analyze American policy toward the Middle East partly with an eye to public opinion. And I started, in fact, writing about American public opinion uh, toward the Middle East um, early in the 1990s. In fact, the first article was one I wrote with my colleague, John Kresnik, who's now at Stanford, um, uh, on issue publics in the Middle East. Um, and since then, as you know, um, uh, there's been a lot more interest in that angle. Um, I did... Um, 
more than 10 years of consecutive polling in the Arab world, um, uh, leading to the my book, The World Through Arab Eyes, and um, have been doing um, extensive polling um, uh, here in the U.S. Uh, on foreign policy issues, but, but especially on the Middle East. And it's all absolutely fascinating stuff, particularly when you you think about and you reflect on the starting point that you've that you've just shared with us. I wonder if you can say a little bit about about how your your sort of constructivist take fits into this. You've articulated this this position with with Kenneth Waltz and then the public opinion. So. I can see how it would fit together, but I wonder if you could just elaborate on that, please. Well, first of all, the, the, the bottom line, starting bottom line, is that um, uh, the, the distribution power uh, in, in the international system can tell you about the possibilities that are open to states, uh, what they can and what they cannot do, but doesn't tell you about what their preferences are. And preferences always have internal dimension. And I think uh, that's true for authoritarian regimes as well as for uh, democracies. Um, everybody has a, an internal component, sometimes the, the primary component driving their preferences. Whether they can accomplish them or not is obviously a function of their capacity in the context of uh, the constraints provided by the international system around them, their relative power in relation to other countries, all of that matters. But ultimately, the drive uh, has internal dynamics, and no one can understand that without those internal dynamics. Those internal dynamics are defined, of course, by the nature of the system, because what, what power matters internally is a function of what the rules of the games are, and yeah. they vary from sure. country to country and system to system. But in the context of, um, of the Arab world, uh, it is, of course, um, you know, a, um, a extremely important because um, uh, regimes who lack legitimacy ultimately uh, need to find a way to, at least if, if not just control um, uh, the political game inside, uh, at a minimum find a way to uh, uh, spend less on their internal security. Uh, and, and the public opinion is always a major a player in this particular game. Um, what we have seen, though, is something fascinating uh, now, which is and it's been part of the history of the relationship between rulers and public opinion uh, in uh, in the Arab world and elsewhere, but, but certainly here. In America, now we talk about identity politics. We say that um, um, identity politics is dominating the way uh, people see the world. Um, and here, what I'm talking about, for example, in our polling in the US, uh, when you ask people whether they support the travel ban of uh, the Trump initiated or oppose it, you find that uh, something like 88% of Republicans support it, and about the same number, roughly 88% of Democrats oppose it. Right Now, that can't be an, an assessment and a substantive assessment of the issue. That is exactly, Trump supports this, therefore I'm supporting it. Trump opposes this, therefore I'm opposing it. It's identity politics, or sure. this is Republican, this is Democrats. In the Arab world, because rulers would lose based on the evaluations of issues, meaning how they're performing economically, how they're performing politically, how they're performing internationally. They would lose every day of the week on their performance. So what they do is they push identity politics. 
And so they frame the questions uh, in uh, a way that forces the publics to instinctively take sides. You're either for us or you're for the enemy. You're either for the secularist or for the Islamist. You're either for the Shia or for the Sunni. You're either for the Arabs or for the Iranians. You're either for the Arabs or for the Israelis. So that framing, um, that biases um, the framing of the issue for the rulers in favor of identity politics in the worst possible way. And the question is whether it works. Um, and I think that's a question that we all have to contemplate, particularly in a, a changing media environment. Um, we had thought, um, particularly in 2010, 2011, 2012, the years of, uh, of the Arab uprisings, uh, we thought, well, there's been a profound transformation uh, in the Middle East, particularly with the information revolutions, uh, information revolution with the with, with rulers no longer monopolizing information uh, with the advent of the internet and social media and, and uh, transnational satellites and so forth, that somehow uh, rulers uh, lack the capacity to frame the issues like they used to. Uh, and therefore, uh, they would um, uh, uh, not succeed in forcing the public to form opinions based on notions that they're constructing to serve them, including identity politics in the worst way. And I think what we have seen is that some of them, uh, as kind of a counter-revolution to the Arab uprisings, have been attempting to do just that. They have been uh, very much uh, trying to uh, control the media in unprecedented ways, including the social media, by uh, clamping down. Uh, in fact, in some countries, um, I would argue that um, uh, kind of the freedom of the press is now more restricted uh, than it was before the Arab uprisings as a way of trying to get it back. So we are facing a game really at the core of, of how you manipulate public opinion, if you can. It's a dynamic game that has to be understood, and uh, certainly the verdict is still out. Hmm. It's, it's fascinating. It's really, really interesting to hear you reflecting on this. And you sort of hinted at a question that I wanted to, to touch on, and, and that concerns the the sort of the, the broader competition and the mobilization of particular identities as regimes seek to, to ensure their survival. And one of those relates, of course, to the project that, that we're looking at here with SEPAD and, and sectarianism. I wonder if you can say a little bit about where sect-based politics fit into to this broader public opinion. And, and of course, it yes, relates sure. to Saudi Iran as well and the tensions that we're seeing yeah. at present. Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, look, uh, let's think about this for one second, the, the, particularly the, the so-called Shia-Sunni Shia divide. Of course there's a Shia-Sunni divide. Uh, it's been there since the beginning of Islam. It's not like this is something new. Uh, and yes, there are theological differences, there are uh, communal differences, there are uh, uh, all sorts of differences that have uh, existed in, 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 the, in Muslim-majority countries, among Muslim communities, all over uh, on this issue. That's not particularly new. So what we're talking about, and when, when does this rise to the top as the animator of politics? It doesn't always, obviously, because we know that, you know, uh, uh, Iran 
has never stopped being Shia majority in Saudi Arabia, never stopped being, uh, you know, uh, Sunni majority. And they coexisted rather nicely at different times, particularly before the overthrow of the Shah. Uh, Iraqis themselves, even within Iraq, uh, you know, uh, communities pre-existed, they married each other, lived with each other. Uh, yes, there have been some uh, tensions, uh, um, you know, even, even during Saddam Hussein days. But uh, the question is, when does that kind of divide become Trump everything else? And we all have multiple identities. Yeah. So a, 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 an Arab is uh, uh, at once an Arab or mostly Muslim or could see themselves as um, Sunni or Shia or Saudi or Egyptian or Jordanian or citizen of the world. Everyone is all these things at the same time. The question is, which one surfaces to the top at any given time? Which one becomes the critical variable for behavior? And that's what governments can play on. It's not that they create new identities. It is that they can emphasize ones over the other that suit them. And here, I'm thinking of both you know, Iran and and. and um, Saudi Arabia. Obviously, the Iranians emphasized Islam more than Shia originally when yeah. they came to power so. uh, as an Islamic revolution. And they reached out to some Sunnis uh, effectively, um, uh, including in places like Egypt and, and, and Jordan. I've done interviews among uh, people who are very much in the Sunni Islamist world, both in, in Jordan and, and Egypt, who who were um, thrilled by the Khomeini revolution and saw him as a hero when he overthrew the Shah. Um, but then, of course, this has shifted on, on their end as well with the opportunities opening up in places like Iraq and, 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 and uh, Syria and, and Lebanon. Uh, and the Saudis, you know, um, uh, the same thing. The Saudis, I think, if you have, if you have to look at the what threatens the regime? What threatens the regime is not the Sunni Shia divide inside. Their Shia constitute a, a no more than 10% of the population. They're in very specific areas. Um, if they were to rise as a Shia group, uh, you know, in the middle of a, of a, 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 a Sunni dominated uh, country, both in terms of power and, and numbers, uh, I think they would they, it, it would it, they would lose. Um, that that's not the real fear inside. Uh, the fear for the Saudis, I think, emerged out of two things um, in recent years uh, for their own regime survival. One is the Iraq War. Yeah. Um, and I, I wrote about this. I wrote a piece um, uh, more recently called um, Mohammed bin Salman, Son of the Iraq War. And, right. and what I was saying here is that, yes, of course, Mohammed bin Salman has displayed certain recklessness, particularly in Yemen and elsewhere. And obviously, in, domestically, one can maybe say there are things that are related to him. But, re, but realistically, when you evaluate Saudi foreign policy, it became more interventionist and more risk-taking uh, after the Iraq war, even before King Salman became king. Um, and that had to do with the fact that the Iraq war did uh, it really shook uh, the anchors of the Saudi stability. What were these anchors? Balance of power between Iran and Iraq. Of course, that disappeared completely after the Iraq war, with Iraq not only not able to balance Iran, but even being a, a, a closely tied to Iran. Uh, the fact that the, the U.S. Um, presence in the region, reliance on American intervention, and obviously the Iraq war has reduced America's interest in intervening in the Middle East, whether it's under Obama or under Trump. Uh, and 
coupled with the Arab uprisings that shook the security of every regime, if Mubarak could go down, uh, obviously they felt uh, that it could catch up to them. So they became extremely insecure following the Iraq war and the Arab uprisings and started behaving in a way that they weren't accustomed to, uh, with tools um, they were not used to, uh, including intervening directly uh, because they couldn't rely on the usual anchors of security, intervening uh, more clandestinely in places like Lebanon and, and Syria and Iraq uh, and Bahrain, obviously more overtly, um, and then ultimately in Yemen, in a way that um, uh, they felt they had to um, take more action and be more proactive for their own security. And with that, there was a particular framing that came out of um, uh, the the fact that the, 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 the absence of the Iraqi balance did raise uh, the importance of Iran in the region. It did open up the capacity uh, for Iran as a competing strategic state um, to, uh, uh, to to influence the environment of Saudi Arabia directly. And with that came a particular framing that suited them. And so in, 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 in that sense, I think uh, that uh, framing of the conflict vis-a-vis -vis Iran or vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the clerical regime in Iran and vis-a-vis -vis, um, Sunni and Shia divide in, across the Arab world um, was born out of uh, regime insecurity in a shifting strategic environment following the Iraq war and the Arab uprisings. And uh, I think that that's absolutely fascinating, and it's it's certainly convincing. Uh, given that we're recording at a time when when there are increasingly fractious tensions between Iran and the United States and Saudi Arabia and Israel, I, I wonder if you can say just a little bit, because I'm conscious we've taken up a great deal of your time, but maybe just a little bit about possible ways out of this, because as you say, you've spent some time when, with various administrations, and I wonder if you you can if you can see a way out and a way of avoiding conflict that feels almost inevitable worryingly um, I think that um, it's very hard um, to make an evaluation uh, under this particular administration I say that having uh, you know, been um, advisor in various ways to multiple administrations, including Republican and Democratic administrations. So, um, so this administration looks different because we have never had a president like this one. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't say that lightly, and I'm not a naive. I know the history of American presidents, and they vary. Um, uh, but th this is really uh, quite unusual by any measure of the imagination, and I think we're, we're all grappling with what it means, and we're all guessing, and we all don't understand. But the best theory that we have um, is that Trump's instinct is not to go to war. He said that before. I think he he thinks of himself as a really brilliant negotiator. He uh, wants to look tough to his constituency, so he wants to take measures that make him look really like a a tough guy. And ultimately, uh, he wants to make a deal and look like a deal maker. And uh, but he knows very little about international politics. He knows very little about military affairs. He knows very little about strategic bargaining in politics. Um, and so the question is, can his instinct trump his impulse? 
And I think that that's the real question here is obviously there are people who want to see a confrontation between the U.S. and Iran. That includes um, regional actors like Israel, like uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, the United Arab Emirates. They see Iran as a strategic threat, not necessarily only militarily, but politically. Mm. Uh, and uh, they, they, they would oppose. Within the U.S., as you know, there's also constituencies um, uh, on the right that are pushing for confrontation, including some of the president's advisors, John Bolton, the White House, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo. Uh, and I think what is not said as much is Jared Kushner. People only associate him with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But the Iran issue is a corollary to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That is, that the Israelis' main aim right now is confrontation with Iran and even the rapprochement with uh, Saudis and UAE as an avenue to confrontation with, with Iran because they see Iran as the major regional threat. And Kushner is very much in harmony with that view. His entire strategic plan related to Arab-Israeli peacemaking, I put that in quotation mark with the deal sure, of the century, yeah. is, is focused on that. And frankly, Trump listens to Kushner far more than he's likely to listen to Bolton. Bolton is a hired gun. They come and go. Uh, uh, a, uh, uh, Kushner is a prince. He stays. Um, mm. And so in, in that sense, I think um, uh, I see even in the discourse, the focus on Bolton is distorting our view of what's taken place. Um, um, uh, and so in that sense, I worry with all these forces, with the inexperience of Trump himself, uh, that we may be on a slippery slope. I don't think that uh, Trump himself is um, going to go to war with an open eye, but uh, can he be put on a slippery slope where, he, where that becomes inevitable? That's a real fear we all have. Yeah, I certainly echo those fears. I, I hope that you're wrong, and I hope that, that my own instinct is wrong. But uh, I guess this, this is a very, very real concern and certainly a live issue. But we've taken up so much of your time, Shibli. Thank you so much for, for speaking with us. It's been absolutely fascinating. And for me personally, it's been absolutely wonderful to, to talk to you about your work and, and the thoughts behind it. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And I, I hope pleasure. to do it again sometime. My pleasure. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Until next time.